Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 203 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's well, when is it? It's it's Friday morning, May 21st, 2021 while we're recording, but we're not releasing the episode until next week, probably Monday, May 24th, but whenever it is. So this has already yeah, this happened. Is, this is, you're, you're looking back in time, listening back in time. Either way, I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. We're not only in Austin, Bobby, because we have a That's special right. guest. We are on uh, both the Texas coast and the East coast, because we are joined today by Eric Bolt, Texas, Texas coast. coast. It's like, it's like Texas move? toast, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but watery. <laughs> okay. So it's not exactly on the coast, but we're, we're here, we're here in the Gulf region. How about that? And on the East Coast, joining us is Eric Goldstein, who serves as the Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity at CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which is part of the Department of Homeland Security. So to recap, DHS includes CISA. CISA, of course, has a cybersecurity division as one of its major divisions. And Eric Goldstein runs the cybersecurity division. And yet we still managed to get him on the show today. Eric, I was going to say, it also has the incredibly bad judgment of joining us for a, a recording. Eric, of welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul, so much. It is great to be here. Uh, this has been one of my favorite podcasts uh, for, for years now, and so it is a real treat to be with you today. Well, it helps when you only listen to one. <laughs> <laughs> We're really excited to have you on. Um, it is kind of continuing a tradition. We don't have guests very often, but uh, but we, we've had Chris Krebs, of course. We've... Uh, I guess we've had NSA people, but so we we do when we have guests, we tend to go cyber, I guess, or at least in cyber. No, I was going to say, it's, 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 uh, there, there, there's an interesting. I, I detect an overlap here, but I can't I, yeah. figure out how this is happening. But we're glad it's happening. <laughs> if only there were some explanation for how you know stuff Bobby is working on is, is leading us to find guests to come on the podcast. We'll, we'll take what we can get, but in this case, we're actually really, really lucky to have you. And what what perfect timing too. Um, so just. What do you mean? There's nothing going on in the cyber never, world. Never, never, yeah. By that standard, it's always a good time. So here's a quick run of show so people have a preview of where we're going to head. Um, in a second, Eric, we're going to ask you to, to, bearing in mind that lots of students and early career folks are hopefully listening to the show, we're going to ask you to walk through your career progress. How'd you get from where you were to where you are? Um, and then along the way, I know we'll learn a fair amount about CISA, but we'll then at the end of that, make sure we've covered what uh, what your division is really doing, not in terms of what's its mission, but what are the practical programs that are administered there? Um, we'd also like to ask you to take us behind the scenes there uh, in the the past several months have been rather busy in the cybersecurity realm. I mean, they always are, but there's a, a boy, we've had a lot of headline grabbers of late. So if you can give us that scene uh behind the scenes preview, that'd be fantastic, or I guess insight. But the real action that we're building up towards is going over the new executive order, 14028. And uh, we'll have a detailed discussion. We'll kind of walk through all the moving parts. And and all that's just build up so we can get to the frivolity where we're going to talk about the NBA, I believe. The best part. That'll be the best part. So you have to you have to eat your veggies before you can have your dessert. And so we'll dive in. You have to you have to take a thirty four foot three pointer with time running down the shot clock. When Is you it can't true see. that Eric was LeBron James's mentor and they taught him that shot? You know, one of one of many talents is long distance blindfolded threes. Uh, my uh, my game's gotten worse as I've gotten older, but you know, I still have it in me now and then. 
Well, we're glad you took your talents to CISA. Um, let's talk about that pathway, developing your talents. I love to push these analogies. You're going how you developed your talents and how you ultimately brought them to where you are. Um, so uh, just give us the real basics. Where'd you grow up and how did you get interested in this area originally? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that I've enjoyed from both of you on this podcast over the years is hearing about your journey in national security law and the the influences that brought you both to where um, you are today. And I think that national security law and cybersecurity really share uh, a common factor, which is that there are many paths that lead to a common end. And I think that's really one of the neatest things about cybersecurity for me is that because it is such an inherently multidisciplinary avocation and field, there are many different roads that lead that lead one to to this end state. Um, you know, for me, I actually began my career as a as a firefighter and as an emergency manager. Uh, wow. I, uh, I I worked as a firefighter in college and thereafter. Um, when I was very young, thought I was going to go into emergency management, maybe work at FEMA, do something like that. Um, and then had the opportunity uh, to work uh, with the Washington D.C. government uh, after college. Went to college in Illinois, worked at the, at the State Fire Academy there. Thought that was going to be uh, be my uh, my focus, and then uh, had the chance uh, when I was when I was younger, a little bit after 9-11, uh, when a lot of the Homeland Security grants were coming out, to begin looking at how do we think about critical infrastructure, um, first from, from a focal point of emergency management, but then more broadly, how do we think about the critical functions that our country depends on, and how do we protect it? And uh, as I began doing more of that work, I had some some very smart and generous mentors who led me down the path of saying, well, you know, there are lots of things that could cause harm to the American people and, and harm to our economy and certainly terrorist attacks and hurricanes and EMPs, for goodness sakes, are all some of those. Um, but as we look over the horizon, and this was 20 years ago at this point, um, um, give or take, uh, cybersecurity really was the one where certainly I and others, I think, really began to reflect and say, this is really where the risk environment is going. This is really where you know our adversaries, criminal groups, nation states are going to begin focusing to really cause harm to our country and our people. Um, and so I began to make that pivot from focusing on emergency management to critical infrastructure and then broadening to cybersecurity. Uh, I had the chance to come into uh, DHS uh, early in the last administration um, and was able to, to serve in a, a early policy role in some of the, the big programs uh, that, that underpin our now national cybersecurity strategy. Um, spent some time at a, at a think tank, actually what's called a federally funded research and development center and an odd amalgam in the U.S. government where there's a nonprofit that's paid by the U.S. government to do research for the U.S. government and got really involved in some of these foundational questions of cybersecurity. How do we know what aspects of a critical system are most vulnerable to a cyber attack? How do we measure good cybersecurity? How do we know if an organization has the right authorities to actually execute a cybersecurity mission? I just really fell in love with the this, this combination of engineering and policy and economics and psychology. Um, 
But while I was at DHS the last time around, I, I felt like something was was missing from that uh, set of disciplines and so decided to uh, go to law school at night uh, while I was at DHS last time um, and, and sort of went into it uh, really without a clear view of the end state that going to law school uh, would would lead me to. I just had some uh, mentors who I really respected at the department and elsewhere who seemed to universally be lawyers and so seemed like it uh, might be a, a good investment. And and I think for me, it, it unequivocally was um, in large part because it just adds an additional um, set of analytic tools to your tool set, uh, which I have found invaluable working in both legal and and policy and operational roles. Um, so was was able to uh, to enjoy my time at DHS during uh, the uh, the uh, last administration. Um, left DHS um, in twenty seventeen. Went into the private sector for a bit. Uh, worked as a cybersecurity lawyer at an international law firm. Uh, then moved over to a multinational bank where I led uh, a global cybersecurity policy strategy regulatory team. Um, and that was a, I think, really another formative experience in my evolution here, understanding how businesses make risk management decisions and understanding how considering cybersecurity as one of a basket of risks that an organization needs to evaluate and deliberate and then decide how to weigh those risks against the need to invest in business priorities. And, and understanding that at a granular level, I think, has been invaluable to me moving back into government. Um, and then uh, had the privilege to uh, to support the, uh, the Biden-Harris transition team and then had really the chance of a lifetime to rejoin uh, CISA in the current role I'm in. So it's been a, a really wonderful journey for me that's that's brought together a lot of different skills, disciplines, areas of interest, and most importantly, just led me to work with extraordinarily talented, brilliant people in government and in, and in the private sector. You know, the, I love how interdisciplinary your your background is, because of course, we we all preach interdisciplinarity in the, at the intersection of cybersecurity policy, governance, and law. Um, it's, you, you obviously can't make headway without some sense of it. And you've really embodied that, which is really cool. The fact that you, uh, made that incredible extra effort to add the law degree on top of all the other qualifications is it's daunting. Um, did you take any, were there courses at that time at Georgetown that were sort of on point for the sort of work you do now, or at least in the area? There were, you know, one of the things, and I'll just do a brief shout out to Georgetown uh, Law School. Um, you know, one of the the great things about uh, my law school, and, and I think likely the same is true at UT and others, is is the ability to to learn from professors who are practitioners in the field. Um, and so, you know, I was able to take courses with with professors who were. You know, actual you know, working at federal agencies, working on these issues in private practice. And so there were a handful of courses, both directly on point with cybersecurity, but also the broader areas of national security law and technology law that just intersect so deeply with what we think about as cybersecurity more broadly. That's awesome. And, and it must be fun being in the, uh, the managerial and policy and other non-lawyer positions that you're in, but nonetheless, having that background I always tell my my LBJ school students, uh, the policy students that I teach, like you know, take these law classes so you so you're equipped to understand. Now you, of course, have the benefit of working with with great lawyers at CISA like Dan Sutherland, um, so I'm sure they take great care of you no matter what. But do you find that you really can better 
uh, integrate and respond to their advice and guidance because of that training? Absolutely. I think, you know, I think you're certainly correct. We have extraordinary lawyers here at CISA who I learn from every day. But I think having this background and this training also allows me to ask the right questions. Uh, because in general, you know, lawyers respond to the questions they're asked. And so having having this background allows me from a policy and a management perspective to tee up the right questions for our lawyers to think through so that we eventually reach the right policy outcome. That's awesome. Uh, well, okay, so you've brought us around. So now there's CISA, and there you are. The cybersecurity division, as I understand it, is one of basically four major divisions, and, and there is some some spillover. But just focusing on your division, what would you say are the, the most important practical functions, things that you guys actually are doing, whether it's service provision, which I know there's a lot of, or advice provision, which is another form of service can you kind of walk us around the factory floor and introduce us to the different widgets that are being made in your factory? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll put it in four or so uh, broad categories, and I might add some more as we go, but I'll start with four. Um, so the first is looking at the federal civilian executive branch, and this will take us to the EO uh, in, in some real substance. But you know, CISA now has a really robust uh, basket of authorities and resources that we can bring to bear to protect the federal civilian executive branch. And so we have the ability to deploy actual detection and protection tools onto federal networks, issue binding directives to federal agencies that they are required under federal law to follow. Um, engage in threat hunting missions uh, with or without prior authorization, provide shared services that, that help agencies get out of the business of doing some part of their cybersecurity program themselves and rely on us to really take on part of that burden. And so, and so the first category is our real robust federal civilian executive branch mission, where we see ourselves as really being uh, a critical both service provider um, and, and increasingly a risk manager for federal civilian executive branch cybersecurity. Let me just quickly jump in to make sure the audience appreciates the multiplicity and breadth of the federal civilian executive branch, the FCEB. I think the right count is 102 separate you, entities. You got it. You got it. Uh, I think I heard Brandon say that yesterday on Stuart Baker's podcast. So I'm going to borrow that. 102 separate organizations. Um, it's a highly feudal landscape, and and it's distinct. And and and, fu and yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, I think we almost have a. Well, that sounds too negative. That won't be the show title. But feudal and futile are are definitely um, probably. Ooh, how about how about resistance is futile? Ooh, ooh no. that's good. Write that down. Still got it, Steve. Still got it. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy for a Borg reference. Um, so yeah, so 102 separate entities and. And this is a little bit of a generalization, but but Eric, is it fair to say that one way to think of it is there's a sort of beginning point in time, it's a bit of a sliding scale, but generally speaking, uh, network and system security functions mostly decentralized out to all the agencies as a starter position. And over time, what's happening is a gradual, uh, it's like, it's like feudal Europe centralizing, right? You've got some centralization of authorities and resources, and these things are building on each other over time. We're kind of in, in CIS is sort of forming as this centralized defender. It's not the full sovereign in that respect yet. There's a lot of sovereignty still parceled out to the units, but where we are in mid 2021 is dramatically different than say six years ago. 
Is that is that a good? I think summary? that's absolutely right. And and if we look at it from the, the point of view of the underlying statute, of course, FISMA, uh, Federal Federal Info Security Modernization Act. You know, we have the Office of Management and Budget that's accountable for developing government wide security policies. We have CISA that's accountable for ensuring appropriate adoption and execution of federal security policies, and then ultimate accountability, um, as you note, uh, for um, security management still rests with each of these 102 federal civilian agencies. But obviously, there's a lot of flexibility within that construct in the statute. And so what we've seen over the past several years is Congress um, and the executive branch increasingly provides CISA with additional authorities, for example, to issue these binding directives, uh, to provide services with or without reimbursement, as well as further resources for us to take on more of the operational mission, recognizing that, as you noted, there's tremendous heterogeneity across these 102 federal civilian agencies. Some of them absolutely are resourced and equipped to, to develop a modern, mature cybersecurity program, but many of them, we just shouldn't expect them to. And we should figure out how we can move to a model in which CISA is able to ensure at least a baseline of strong cybersecurity across the civilian executive branch. I love it. So we're getting there. A long way to go, but we're getting there. Okay, so I interrupted you after you described sort of the FCEB piece. Um, You said there were several other pieces. Yep, absolutely. So the second is what I'll term operational collaboration. This has really been an evolving space for CISA. You know, a few years ago, we really talked about information sharing as focusing on on, uh, on breadth. Uh, how can we share the most information possible with the most number of entities across the country or even across the world? And when I say information here, I'm referring to information about cybersecurity threats, vulnerabilities, et cetera. Um, and that's still important. We still want to make sure that we are sharing broadly and that we're benefiting all entities who want to to do that work with us. But we've also realized, and this has been, I think, a transition for the cybersecurity community more generally, is that we need to do deeper collaboration with those organizations that can really move the needle in national cybersecurity. And so we've made real progress in CISA serving as not just a convener, but also an operational partner to work with key entities in the private sector and government to do what we now call joint cyber defense operations, which means how can we take joint action to understand national risk, to notify victims, uh, to inform actions against our adversaries, like taking down their infrastructure. Congress recognized the criticality of this role in establishing a new office in CISA called the Joint Cyber Planning Office in last year's NDAA. And this office, the JCPO, really is the formalization of this model, where recognizing that there's actually a finite number of actors in cybersecurity who can make an asymmetrically significant difference in driving change, this is the codification of CISA's role in bringing together those entities and driving this sort of change specific to certain intrusion campaigns, certain vulnerabilities, certain categorical risks like ransomware. And so, and so that's the second big piece is the maturation right. of our collaboration model. Uh, how does that intersect? I can imagine a version of that that's purely sort of systematic, forward-looking, you know, trying to level things up all the time or an incident management, incident-specific response. I Did I hear notes of both of those? And, and if it includes some of the incident management and coordination there, 
How does that relate to the uh, to the idea of the the White House ba- or NSC based coordination group model? Yeah, absolutely. So it it has to be both. And if we're doing this right, the way that it that it works, at least in a theoretical construct, is we identify the highest priority cybersecurity risks that we care about as CISA and as a country. We develop uh, joint public-private cyber defense plans to manage those risks. We exercise those plans. We, we do that jointly, again, with government and the private sector. Uh, we make sure that, that the plans work as designed. And then when these risks manifest, when there is a new ransomware campaign, when there is a nation-state intrusion of a certain typology, then we have the plan exercise exercise ready to go, and then we execute those plans. And once we are into plan execution, if the cyber incident is significant um, under PPD 41, that is when the unified coordination group construct convened by the White House would come into place as the overarching policy coordination structure um, for the incident. And our JCPO would be the operational, even tactical coordination model to to coordinate the ongoing actions um, for cyber defense, just like other arms of government would do their operational coordination for the, for example, actions to impose costs on adversaries um, as part of the the overall uh, campaign. Got it. So that uh, that the response, the incident response, where CIS is the lead, this is the intersectional vehicle for it. FBI for the the crime investigative element, they're going to have something comparable within their framework and, and so on around the horn. Great. Awesome. Okay. So moving on down the list, uh, the third piece I'll reference is we just spoke to operational collaboration, focusing on really discrete partners who can drive specific change. But also we know that we have a broader national mission. Um, And so the second piece here is understanding and working to reduce national cybersecurity risk. And so we do this by sharing information broadly um, and magnifying it through every possible channel. And so, of course, we saw this after the recent intrusion into, into Colonial Pipeline, when CISA and our partners at the FBI put out a joint cybersecurity advisory with very specific practices that all entities should take to reduce their risk of ransomware. And then we amplify that. For example, we had a broad stakeholder call with something like 9,000 participants from, from critical sectors to ask us questions about the guidance. And so, you know, part of the mission is just getting the word out about in cybersecurity right now. We generally know the kind of things that work. Um, And so making sure that all companies understand, you know, if you take these particular steps, you're not going to prevent every single intrusion by every single adversary, but you'll have a pretty good shot at either preventing most intrusions, or if you have an intrusion, detecting it fairly quickly and minimizing the most damaging impacts. And then a second part of this is also understanding vulnerabilities, um, across the country. And so we have programs where we scan for vulnerabilities um, for for companies and governments that sign up for our service. Uh, we work with vendors on vulnerability disclosure to make sure that we are appropriately reporting and disclosing new vulnerabilities that occur. And again, j- just try to over time buy down the national risk that we're seeing, um, both through the adoption of better cybersecurity practices and also promoting the faster remediation of vulnerabilities in commercial hardware and software. That's fantastic. So and does then, that complete our tour around the shop floor? I'll do, I'll do one more, uh, which right. is which is we know that that this these large operational activities, 
even an aggregate, won't necessarily lead us to the secure cyber future that we want to be in in five or 10 years. And so we're also focused on longer term investments in really changing the cybersecurity environment and making sure that we are building in security um, into our software and hardware. We are informing development of a strong and diverse national cyber workforce. Um, And certainly the EO gets at this in great degree with its focus on third-party risk and software assurance. And so we also invest in making sure that the way that we build, manage, and use technology in five or 10 years will lead us to demonstrably different cybersecurity outcomes than we're able to achieve today. Fantastic. Well, so we need to get to the executive order, but first, you know, you talked in, a moment ago about about the response to particular incidents, especially the ones that count as, quote, significant cyber incidents. That's the language from the the, the national plan. So uh, we've had some of these of late. Uh, what's it been like? Can you paint a picture of the be- behind the scenes experience uh, you've been having? It's certainly been uh, an exciting few months to rejoin the federal government in a cybersecurity role. Uh, we have had um, you know, fairly uh, sequentially, a series of uh, identified significant cyber intrusion campaigns, uh, beginning, of course, with the uh, the campaign uh, affecting SolarWinds, Orion, uh, network management platforms, and certain cloud environments, uh, onto the uh, widespread campaign affecting Microsoft Exchange Server, and then more recently, the campaign affecting Pulse Connect Secure remote access devices, and then most recently, the intrusion impacting Colonial Pipeline. Um, you know, I think we have certainly learned a lot from these intrusions, um, and I think the U.S. government and our cybersecurity community is frankly capitalizing upon what we have learned, um, as realized in the Cyber Executive Order, in realized by the decision uh, of Congress to appropriate significant new resources uh, to CISA in the last COVID relief bill, um, and also in the Industrial Control System Initiative that the White House is currently um, uh, managing to improve the security of our nation's control systems. Um, And so I think across the board here, for those of us who've been in this field, all of these incidents, uh, I think, reflected known areas for improvement in both federal and national cybersecurity, and ideally the increased awareness about cybersecurity risk from these campaigns is going to really catalyze attention um, on the severity of the challenge we face and the need to make some real investments now. I think, frankly, the fact that the president issued an executive order with the depth of very practical, concrete steps. I mean, this 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 EO, as, as I'm sure you both observed, does not look like many other EOs. And so the fact that we um, now have, have an EO from the president's desk that has real concrete security steps that are going to make a real difference reflects, I think, on the, the importance of these campaigns in really focusing everybody's attention on the urgency of this risk and the need to make some real change in the immediate future. It's, it's so true. I've actually, you know, I've got the, the, the printout here in my hands. And as, as my co-author on a, on a summary that we did for Lawfare, as Trey Herr from Atlantic Council observed, um, one, of, one of the subsections, you know, plums the depth of the alphabet in reaching down. I, I can't remember if it got down like to Y and Z, but it really got QRS, TUV. Bobby, it's, it's, only when you, it's only when you get to the double letters. It's only when you get to subsection QQ26 that you know we're in trouble. They got with section four gets down to subsection X and along the way, there's just, there's so much great nuance. So let's, let's dive into it. Um, but is the L italicized? 
Oh, uh, I doubt it very much. You know, blue book form, right? L is a subsection. So I'm just, I'm just, you know, I, listen, I have, I have very little of substance to contribute to this conversation that's mostly over my head. So I have to be the, the comic relief. I, I will confirm that it's not italicized. And I, for one, am grateful for that. Um, so there's, there's two different ways to approach the EO, which has uh, basically uh, subsections two through nine are operative. And we could go just sort of hitting the highlights in that sequence. But one thing that occurred to me as I looked at it was that if you think it just from the, the life cycle of, of security, from uh, prevention to detection to mitigation and lessons learned, that ends up jumping you around a little bit. And it might actually be a little more intuitive, uh, especially for listeners who aren't steeped in this stuff, if we talk about the particular things it does in the life cycle of, of a cybersecurity problem. So if we did it that way, maybe the first item up is what does the executive order accomplish when it comes to increasing our capacity to prevent intrusion, especially for the federal civilian executive branch entities? Um, a lot of different things here, multi-factor, uh, drive towards the cloud, um, critically uh, a push on software supply chain standards and even some IoT thrown in. What would you highlight for, for listeners as the key moving parts? Yeah, so it's, I think that's a great framing. And, and the way that I would, I think, subframe uh, the prevention category is, is looking at there's work that we as a government need our third-party vendors to do, there's work that agencies need to do, and there's work that CISA needs to do. And so in the first sure. instance, um, third-party risk management has historically been a hard problem in cybersecurity. Um, in part because there is a question of what do we want third parties to do? How do we get them to do it? And then how do we get some assurance that they've actually done it? And so uh, the EO is a extraordinary step forward in, in requiring uh, CISA as well as numerous other agencies to work with a government body called the FAR Council that's, that's in charge of, of federal uh, procurement regulations and develop a new set of security requirements for uh, federal contractors, um, and then critically here, identify a list of software vendors or software products that are most critical that need to adopt these requirements, and then actually includes a process over time for software vendors that don't adopt these requirements to actually be disallowed from um, federal procurements or being utilized on federal networks. And so you know, uh, there is cer certainly a number of procedural steps uh, within the EO to develop out that chain, but the end state is extraordinarily pro-security um, and really a, a significant step forward from where the government or frankly, most organizations um, have been today. And I will say, you know, having had some experience in the private sector as well, this is an area where, where the government really is now putting forth a leading model um, that I think will be seen as a model for other organizations and how they think about a strong third-party risk management program. Now, moving on from what we need vendors to do, there's also just a lot of work for agencies to do. So the order uh, directs agencies to have a plan for moving towards zero trust architectures. And just a brief sidebar on that, um, you know, for, for a long period in cybersecurity, it was generally thought as a as an overarching model that companies could have a, a hard perimeter that, that they could harden their network boundary and if the network boundary was hard that was the most important thing because you're going to keep the adversary out and then whatever's happening inside your network you didn't really need to worry about that and you know, i think the past 
decade or so of cyber intrusions and what we've seen from the evolution of, of our adversaries' sophistication has just rendered that to be a falsehood. And so we now know that, that you have good cybersecurity. You know, yes, you do need strong perimeter controls, but you also need layers of defenses within your environment. And then even beyond that, you also need to move to this principle of zero trust in which you actually pr um, protect individual accounts uh, and individual access rights and, and individual, um, you know, we'll call them instances of data um, based upon their risk. And therefore, you're presuming that the interior of the network is untrusted. You're presuming that an unauthorized actor has, has already broken in. And your assumption is, well, if an actor has already broken into my network, what are the accounts, the databases, the resources in my network that I need to protect first and foremost? And how do I have layers of controls around those most critical assets that will assuredly or reasonably assuredly minimize the impact of an intrusion that does occur? That's that's huge. It's kind of a to put it in Game of Thrones terms, Winterfell has to have a big wall. Yeah, you don't take the wall down, but you got to post guards everywhere inside. And when someone walks by and says that they're Bran Stark, um, you can't. Well, maybe walking by is the, if somebody comes up and they they say that they're <laughs> a bad example. Um, somebody presents as a Stark. You know, you gotta you can't just assume that's who they say they are. You have to assume breach and assume interior movement and threat and be inefficient. Like like Nick Weaver says, there's a tension, of course, between efficiency for the network and security or resilience of the network. Um, you really, to, in a certain sense, can't have both. And it's clear that zero trust is, is the smarter way to go. Absolutely right. And then you know, just briefly beyond that, looking at the cloud, you know, we knew that Agencies and companies have been moving to the cloud for years, but we've seen the pandemic really cause an acceleration in cloud adoption, uh, driven by remote work and just driven by new needs for mobility and scalability. And so, and so the order also directs CISA, OMB, and others to develop a cloud security strategy, a technical reference architecture that will be the baseline for cloud security practices across government, um, and a cloud security governance model. Um, and these, of course, not only will be uh, adopted by federal agencies, but another example of where the executive order is driving development of security artifacts that can be adopted more broadly and really raise the bar for national and even global cybersecurity. And then the last point I'll raise here, because it actually hasn't gotten much commentary yet, is the order also requires agencies to evaluate the sensitivity of their unclassified data which is really important because one of the hardest parts about cybersecurity is actually thinking through um, what is all of the data that I have in my, in my organization? Uh, where is it being stored? How important is it? How bad would it be if somebody got access to it? And then how do I um, store and manage that data in a way that I have protections that follow the data wherever it goes? Um, this is a really challenging step to take, but the fact that this order begins us down this road of, of data-centric security um, is really important. And so I think this will be a foundation laid that will pay great dividends over time. That's interesting. That feels a little bit like a delayed uh, lesson learned from OPM, from Office of Personnel Management, or at least that's a good example of how you, you might have incredibly sensitive data that's not at all at the, at the point in time in the past being accorded the level of security that seems necessary for that sensitivity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, should we move on to uh, 
minimization of the impact of intrusion? I guess we've already covered that. What about um, detection and, and yeah. responding to intrusions once, once somebody does ring the alarm bells? Yeah. So this is one of the biggest lessons learned uh, from Cisco's point of view from the SolarWinds campaign. And it was a lesson that, that we were already cognizant of, but really was, was cast in stark relief by this campaign, which is for CISA to do our job most effectively and for agency CIOs to do their job, we both need deep operational visibility into cybersecurity risks across agency networks, which means we need to know nearly instantaneously when an intrusion occurs, when there's a malicious actor moving laterally across a network, when there's a new vulnerability manifesting, we need to know that very quickly and then be able to correlate it across agencies so we can say, is, is this just some one-off bad thing happening or are we in the midst of another widespread campaign that we need to really act with, with great alacrity in addressing? And so the order takes some significant steps along these lines. It, it bears noting here, I think, I think really importantly, that this part of the order aligns really intentionally and and well with the appropriation to CISA under the COVID relief bill, which provided us with resources to deploy, for example, more detection tools and resources for federal agencies and develop our capacity to analyze information from these tools to drive targeted action. And so the order um, requires agencies to participate in CISA's endpoint detection and response efforts. Um, it requires agencies to provide access uh, to to um, uh, to their data. This is an area, interestingly, where CISA already has that authority in current law. But but to the point Bobby that you've raised, this is a point where this is this is the president saying maybe current law already says this, but agencies, you really have to go do this now. It's extremely important, and so really just just accelerating the importance of that kind of work. Yep, yep, that makes sense. I do I do think that uh, you know it's it's all great for. Uh, Brandon and for Chris before him and soon Jen to to use the authorities CISA's got, but there's just nothing quite like the president directing it in the form of the most visible instrument he's got, the executive order. So that's good. That's right. And just just agencies have a lot of work to do. And these are all very busy people. And so the president saying, here is something that is top of your list. Cybersecurity is one of the most important things in the Biden-Harris administration. Just driving the focus on this issue, I think will be deeply valuable. And then I think our last category might be what I'll call respond, recover, and improve, if I can, if I can create yeah. a new construct there, um, yeah, like which is, which is right now, um, CISA, of course, leads what we call asset response um, for the federal government, which, which generally involves efforts to understand and mitigate the impacts of cyber intrusions. Of course, our colleagues at the FBI lead what's called threat response, which involves um, attributing the intrusion to an adversary and then taking actions to impose costs on that adversary in concert with, with other partners. Um, and you know, the EO really does three key things in that space. First of all, it directs CISA to work with agencies to develop a standardized incident response playbook so that when we, when we do have an incident, there is a common protocol, a common sheet of music that we're all reading off of. And so we, we all know what to expect, what to do, and we can move as one. The second piece, that's, it, that's, that's another example of, of um, amplifying an authority in current law, the order directs agencies to provide CISA with review um, of their results from their incident response analysis or forensics, which is critically important because when 
key thing about CISA is, you know, we don't necessarily need to be the agency doing the incident response ourselves for every single intrusion. What we need to be effective is visibility into the information, the threat activity, the forensics resulting from the incident response. And so if a victim organization wants to use one of the outstanding third parties or private companies in this country, um, that's terrific. Um, We just need to make sure, A, that we're partnering with them as applicable and that we're getting full benefit from the information resulting from that response. And so this provision creates a requirement and an expectation that CISA will receive that information to do our job. And then the last point here, probably closing out the EO, is the order calls for our secretary to establish a cyber safety review board, uh, which I am really excited about. It's it's going to be, you know, uh, it's been compared to the NTSB. Of course, it is not going to have the NTSB's full suite of of authorities and certainly not resources, but it's a it's a step forward in helping the government bring together the private sector and the relevant agencies to look at an incident and say what went well, what didn't go well, and then where can we improve to reduce the likelihood of similar events happening in the future. Institutionalized lessons learned is such we know this from from the physical accidents context, known that for a long time it's it's you know, past due to get something similar in place, including um, whatever may need to be done further by Congress, perhaps time will tell that there does need to be a little bit more authority. Um, Stuart Baker has raised the question, is it going to ultimately need some subpoena powers to make sure people share this information? But one way or the other, it's setting us down a good institutional innovation pathway. So this is all, this is all very comforting. And as you said earlier, it's, it's more, practical and substantive than we are accustomed to thinking of being in an executive order. And that's great. That's a sign that that's a sign that bit by bit we're getting where we need to go. Now I'm mindful of the time here. Um, and I do feel like having covered all this serious stuff, we had best also cover our friends in the NBA, which have their own set of problems. So, <laughs> so Eric, if you have any final closing thoughts you want to share about the EO or other CISA related matters, any, uh, Final things to put out there before we get frivolous. Now's a good time. You know, since my hometown Wizards are now in the playoffs, I am, I'm eager to move to frivolity. Um, but I would just note, Bobby, I think you you said it very well. I think it has been a, a challenging time for national cybersecurity with uh, these, these rounds of intrusion campaigns. But with the executive order, with the focus, um, you know, both within the White House, within CISA and across the interagency, I think we're now poised to make some really important changes in the months and years to come. That's awesome. Good time to be at CISA. Uh, and apparently a good time to be a wizard. You know, you haven't been able to say, hey, Washington's in the playoffs. That's not something you always get to say. Me, I know it for 22 years. How about years the Knicks? How about, yeah, how about even, the, even more so than I Knicks. mean, come on. You Eastern Conference fans are having your heyday. Well, me as a Spurs guy, I thought it was my, my birthright to, of course, to talk about playoff basketball. And now for the second year in a row, First time since the Ford administration, this has been true for San Antonio. We're watching from the sidelines, and I'm, I'm sad, guys. Uh, okay, so Knicks and Wizards, tell me about their prospects. Are they going anywhere? The Wizards yeah. are not. Ouch, Eric. Do you agree with this provocative? You know, claim? I think you know. For me, as a basketball fan, really, I care about two things. I care about is the team that I like not absolutely awful. 
And are they exciting to watch? And for me, uh, the Wizards this year check both those boxes. Uh, they are, you know, they're going to be the eighth seed in the playoffs. They probably will not make it very far. Um, but hey, they beat the Pacers by 30 some points last night to get in. Um, and so that made me smile. And frankly, you know, when you put Russell Westbrook and Bat and Bradley Beal in a backcourt, you're going to see fun things happen. Um, and and the fact that Westbrook beat Oscar Robertson's record for most triple doubles this year, wearing a Wizards jersey. You know, <laughs> the Wizards don't have uh, that many records on on the NBA all time list, at least since since the West on Cell days. And so for I was me, say West on Cell probably has something, but but you're right. Exactly. They, since look, it's the curse of the name change. It, they should have stayed the Bullets. I get why they changed. The Bullets is just such a far better uh, name than the Wizards, and yet they they seem to have finally paid whatever. Uh, moral debt was owed for that lame name change and now they're starting to really look interesting and and then the knicks steve what to what do you attribute the knicks uh improved prospects tibbs it's all about tibbs coach thibodeau yeah, it does seem like um, and also and also julius randall you know putting on a superman costume for for six months yeah, um, that, that doesn't hurt so i mean i, I you know I, I will say i i am i am i am slightly um bullish on on well, I, I think the Knicks have a decent chance of actually winning a playoff series for the first time since I was, I don't know, about like three. Um, right. Who they uh, so they're, 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 they're playing the Hawks um, oh, yeah, and it's the yeah. four or five series and the Knicks have home court advantage, although I'm not sure how much of a deal that is. I, I think the Knicks probably win that series, although it might be close. Um, and then they'll get smushed by the 76ers fresh off of smushing the Wizards. So, you know, I mean, I, I really do think that there is a, unlike in the West, where, you know, if, if the Warriors win tonight, perhaps two of the best teams are the seven and the eight seeds. I think there really is a gap in the East between, you know, the top, I don't know, the top three seeds, right? right. Philadelphia, Sixers, Brooklyn. Sixers Bucks in, yeah. in Brooklyn. Yeah. Although Brooklyn's so fun. I mean, all the talent in the universe, um, can it be brought together and to coalesce in the way? Who, who's going to come out of the East, each of you? Who would you say? If they're healthy, Brooklyn. If they stay healthy, it's just I, I don't know how I mean, unless they get hurt, I don't know how you can bet against that team. You know, I was a uh, I'm a, a recent Brooklyn expat having lived there until about a month and a half ago. So and and I am uh, I am saddened that, uh, you know, the the one year in Brooklyn when I couldn't go to games, uh, they they signed a super team. Um, and right. so, uh, you know, the year I was there when I went to games, they were, uh, you know, solid, but bordering mediocre then they signed a super team and no one could go to games because of that i'm gonna go 76ers i think it could be the the process will, will sort of reach its apogee here now oh, that, i mean that that series could be a lot of fun like sixers nets for the eastern conference finals could be a real a real barn burner and so the answer is the bucks now turning to the west um, yeah I, I so golden state i don't think can get too far the lakers absolutely of course can get healthy ad's back they can go on he was really good the other night the lakers extremely dangerous um but utah and phoenix both you know they they have the receipts from the regular season it's not a flash in the pan and you wonder how much do we just overlook them for lack of familiar star power lack of uh media coverage you know smaller markets etc the the records are there um they're clearly pretty darn good and so who do you think is coming out of the West, bearing in mind the traditional powers and these new powers? Eric? 
I think I think the Suns are really interesting. I'm gonna you know, it's funny. I was I was I was leading, like you know if they yeah. can just survive the Lakers, right? Like it's it's the weirdest thing where you've got a two seed where your basic view is as long as they win their first round series, they have a really good chance of going all the way. Win it all. <laughs> yeah, you know, in these in these long series, it's always a question of what is better: having you know younger talent that's gonna you know have stamina versus having having the older the older players who've been there before. And I think yeah. the Suns will be uh, will. We'll question which of those is uh, is actually more relevant. I, I mean, I, I'll put it this way: I think I think whoever. So I'm gonna I'm gonna. Here's my bold prediction: Whoever wins that series wins the West. the The winner of the Suns Lakers series wins the is the West is the Western Conference representative in the finals. All right. So keeper ditched the play in format, bearing in mind that it does seem to have delivered us. Well, wait. What? Where were the Lakers in that hierarchy? Would they have they been were seven. without it? Yeah. So they would have been in anyways. Yes. Yeah. Would I like it. Yeah. I like it. I, I thought I thought it gave us a couple of really energetic. I mean, look that Lakers that the Lakers Warriors game the you know the other night. I mean, um, we never would have had that like this early in the yeah. playoffs. I, I you know I, I thought that was fantastic. The principle of more meaningful games, however you can get them, yeah, which is a problem for the NBA yep. more so than most sports. So yeah, let's keep yeah. it. Fully agree. The NBA season is very long. The NBA playoffs feel like a full second season. And so yeah. adding in a, a little a little group of uh, fun, important games in there seems to me like a win-win. Yeah. Well, plus, be, be, especially because it has the effect, as Bobby says, of making a lot of teams that would otherwise just give up the last couple of weeks actually still still compete. Absolutely. And that happened this year. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, the, the Spurs were trying to compete, and it still looked like we were giving up the way it went. <laughs> oh, do you think Popovich retires? I don't think he wants to go out like this. No. The question is, is there a realistic path forward to give him a better send-off, which he certainly deserves? Yep. Uh, and will he hand the keys, as I think he might, and the Spurs become the first team with the female head coach, hand the keys to Becky Hammond, which would be That would really, be cool. That would be very cool. Um, and so maybe next year is like a transitional year where she gets to do – I think she got to coach one Like co-head coach him? Get, get her more and more involved. And then, yep. uh, yeah. It would be interesting to see, too, whether there might be – so San Antonio, our problem is, of course, it's it's relatively hard to draw the, the the megastars to want to come to San Antonio. We've we've had conspicuous good fortune with conspicuously, uh, you know, Tim Duncan, like superstar, super boring, perfect perfect fit. Uh, might having might the idea of being on a team with uh, major sports first female head coach among the men's leagues might that be a draw? Maybe uh, hard to know, but I'd like to think so. We need to draw somebody there. And guys, with that, I think we've uh, closed out all the important topics for this. Oh, yes. Uh, Cybersecurity and Becky Hammond as the first female head coach in the NBA. I think we we hit it all. Resistance is futile. Eric, any closing thoughts or uh, props you want to hand out to anybody? Just, uh, you know, my thanks to to you both uh, for the chance to chat. It was a lot of fun. And also, really, uh, my thanks to the team at CISA. Uh, you know, we really have an absolutely extraordinary group of public servants here who have come to work every single day during a pandemic, securing the election, managing the cyber intrusion campaigns. Um, and for, uh, for those students out there uh, or folks already in their careers who are thinking about cybersecurity as an avocation, I would say there is no more uh, fascinating, fun, exciting area to be in right now. And I would project for years and maybe decades to come. Um, and for those looking for a place, whether you are a lawyer, a technologist, a policy person, uh, CISA has a whole lot of fun work right now. And so I would encourage anybody looking for their uh, their next role to uh, give us a look. 
That's awesome. On that note, I will I will notice or mention that there's a bunch of upcoming CISA job fairs. Jay Healy had a great tweet uh, listing them, and I retweeted that from my account. So if you go to either Jay's, which I don't remember off the top of my head what it is, or at Bobby Chesney, you'll you you can find uh, that list. Yep. And also, as always, CISA.gov uh, has it all there as well. Cool. All right. Keep up the good work. And, yeah, seriously. Uh, and thanks so much for joining us, Eric. Yeah, thanks for, for being here. My pleasure, guys. All right, Steve, you want to close this out? The traditional um, way? I guess, um, you know, especially with Eric on with Eric on the wall. Stay safe out there, everybody. Adios.